Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast. We are back after our summer hiatus and there has been no shortage of seafood news happening and uh, and we've got a lot of topics to discuss, but let's start off with the most important ones and keep it kind of narrow today. Obviously, we have to talk about COVID. We promise we won't be talking about COVID every single episode. We're doing our best to, to seek out all kinds of other things that are happening because there are other things happening besides COVID, but alas, it hangs over uh, everything that we do nowadays. I'm joined today by Rachel Sapin, business reporter, and John Fiorillo, executive editor. You both worked on a story about the costs of uh, mitigating COVID in the run-up to uh, the Alaska season and as well as uh, what's happening in other parts of the U.S., but Rachel, can you tell us a little bit about how things went uh, or have been going in Alaska? Because there was so much preseason concern, particularly about remote locations like Bristol Bay, potential impact on the local communities, native populations. Um, how did it? Uh, how did it play out? How has it played out so far? Is it a worst case scenario, middle scenario? What's your take on it? So. Um, yeah, so it's been a pretty wild ride in Alaska. It's starting to slow down now, but uh, for what we've been able to track, uh, seafood cases have made up a huge part of Alaska's non-resident cases, uh, most, if not all of them. And from what we've reported, we have reported about 594 positive cases in Alaska so far. That's out of about a little over a thousand cases total in the U.S. So Alaska Cases um, among seafood workers are accounting for more than half, it looks like, of um, positive cases reported in the U.S. So Alaska, it did have a rough summer with coronavirus. And there were a couple companies that really were contributing to that, one of them being Cook, um, Cook and Ocean Beauty's operation called OBI Seafoods. Uh, they had several outbreaks throughout the summer, one of their biggest being at their one of their plants um, where they had about 143 workers test positive and that number has probably risen since we reported on that um, in the past couple weeks but yeah it's been really tough um, for Alaska seafood to keep COVID under control um, it's it's definitely been uh, probably the biggest influence in terms of uh, positive non-resident cases in the state over this summer. Yeah, and I mean, pretty much every major company in Alaska, to one extent or another, had cases. Um, but what do we think? And and you know, we we we've been covering this again. You know, preseason. Um, is there any sense of what has gone wrong and why we've had cases um, among some companies more than others? John, maybe you can talk about this a bit because we know we know what happened with American. Um, we know um, that there was a very different approach to how they prepped for the Pollock season, and that ended up being a big, big mistake for them. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know what each company did incorrectly, if you will, because we don't, you know, we're not there. We don't know. I mean, one thing that was brought up uh, with American uh, early on when their when their first cases started to uh, show up was um, 
this question of why workers were only being quarantined five days instead of what is considered normal, which is 14 days. Now, I don't think we ever really heard a good explanation on that. And, you know, it's conjecture to guess um, uh, to to say that that was the contributing factor. But that, that has been raised. As far as just the outbreaks in general in Alaska, I mean, is anybody really surprised, though? I, I mean... Yeah. You know, we're bringing thir- how many is it, Rachel? It's like thirteen thousand workers into very small communities, and asking them to work shoulder to shoulder, basically, at a time when we have this contagion that is just you know running rampant. It, I, in some ways, and I probably people will criticize me for this in some ways i think alaska did a pretty good job to be honest with you now that said you know you're still introducing all these people into these remote communities and the effect on the residents when all this is said and done is is the true impact you know and i i don't know that we fully know what that is yet yeah, and I mean, we, we had, um, you know, Rachel, you've talked to a lot of people in, uh, you know, about their strategies and about their um, kind of their reactions when they do have outbreaks. And it, it does seem that there is, when you talk to people off the record, there's some finger pointing that this company was doing it better than that company um, or it was came from the community into the plant. Um, is there any sense um, of of what it what it was that um, that really was the stumbling block for say a company like Cook and Ocean Beauty? Um, I'm curious. You know, I we all know that Cook and Ocean Beauty formed OBI very very late in the uh, in the preseason. I mean, right up to the mark, and it seems like that uh, alone would lead to a lot of confusion and chaos among their staff and not knowing who's the boss, how it's going to work, et cetera, et cetera. But is there anything else you think that Cook and Ocean Beauty failed to do? Or do we just say, okay, they had bad luck? Why were they hit so badly? I think it's a great question. I think it's a question we don't have answers to yet. You know, um, just because obviously we see that it hits places harder when you have the workers in the enclosed spaces. Uh, obviously, there weren't a lot of fishing vessels uh, impacted other than American seafoods in terms of um, an outbreak, which is really interesting too, right? But um, yeah, I think Cook is going to, we'll see what happens, but I think they do have to maybe talk a little bit about at some point about how they are handling these cases, Cook and Ocean Beauty, because there are other huge companies in the region in Alaska, Trident, for example, that have the same large processing plants in remote areas, and they're not seeing these outbreaks. And, you know, at the beginning of the season, all of these companies released the same coronavirus prevention plans, and they're all essentially the same plans, and they're all following the same state quarantine measures. So I'm also really curious what the differences have been. Um, And I don't think I've quite gotten that answer um, when I've reached out to to OBIC Foods and the other companies, um, but I think it's a great question. 
Well, I think that there was a lot of maybe cut and paste from some of those project plans. You know, when you read through them, it looked like a lot of people kind of looked around at what the other companies were doing and, um, you know, and, and sort of um, put forward the, uh, a similar plan. And whether or not they followed that, who knows? Um, just in knowing that region and knowing um, kind of how the, the processing sector operates during that um, the Bristol Bay season, I can only imagine um, the challenges of keeping uh, these uh, very temporary staff um, in the campus, um, keeping them from interacting with uh, with locals. You know, if they're flying in uh, on commercial jets, um, not everybody was flown in on on uh, charter vessels. They're going to be mingling with um, with other people in the community. I mean, this is. I think maybe it's not the worst case scenario of what we might have seen in in my view, but you know, it certainly I think there's a lot of people that are now kind of shaking their heads and saying, "Well, we told you so." And and it's no there's no mystery why Alaska's coronavirus cases spiked, you know, right there in June. There's no there's no mystery at all. It has to do with the seafood industry. And so, um it's kind of the story around the US, unfortunately, that um, you know, it, it just it just seems like, um, you know, Americans in general have not been able to manage it very well. And the states have been kind of disorganized on it. Um, so it's it's unfortunate. And I I hope that we don't see any more major outbreaks um, and the season is kind of winding down. But, um, yeah, we just saw another another big one from Cook and OBI just last week. So, um yeah, not uh, not good. So you and John um, did some really extensive reporting on uh, COVID and how processing uh, companies have have dealt with the the mitigation of it, the preparation for it. Um, obviously, when there are outbreaks, for example, in Alaska, you have a whole nother layer of uh, of complexity and cost to get people out of the communities and uh, get them isolated in areas where it's it's certainly not so simple to find hospital care. But in general, what what did you find about um, costs and and what this the toll that this took on the bottom lines for companies? And John, maybe you can start. Yeah, um, well, not surprisingly, you know, the bigger the company, the more they spent. And uh, it was uh, Coincidental, the other day, Clearwater and and uh, Highliner released uh, their second quarter numbers, and and in those they revealed some of the costs uh, associated with COVID and keeping their employees safe. Uh, you know, buying masks, doing all those things that uh, these companies are doing. And in Clearwater's case, uh, it was 5.8 million Canadian, which is about mm, five, uh, four point two, three million U.S. And then uh, Highliner was 1.6 million. Uh, you know, Rachel and I talked to other large companies uh, that wanted to stay off the record, but, you know, they were in the same neighborhood. Um, and those expenses aren't going away. It's not like, uh, oh, it's over now and we don't have to, to do this. That They're going to be there, um, you know, for the foreseeable future. So, you know, the, the, the short story is um, they're spending millions uh, in 
efforts to protect the employees, keep the plants running, because, you know, that's why the employees are there. And uh, and that doesn't even really factor in this whole lost business uh, side of the cost. Uh, you know, we really don't know that yet. I mean, one, one thing we do know is that uh, distributors have told NFI that they're losing hundreds of millions, uh, largely because of the fall off in food service. So, yeah, it's substantial. And um, the question is, you know, some of the medium, the small size companies, they have to spend to protect their employees as well. How long can they sustain that? Um, you know, it's it, that that's a question we, we don't know the answer to yet. So what are some of those costs, Rachel? What are some of the things that, that, are, uh, that companies are spending so much money on? Um, yeah, so there were a lot of interesting, and uh, some costs were similar between companies, some were unique. Uh, we got to speak pretty in-depth with uh, Roger Bryan from, sorry, with Roger O'Brien from Santa Monica Seafood, and he kind of spoke about just a bunch of different costs. Um, for example, he spoke about how the company is paid about $100,000 for personal protective equipment, like face masks, face shields, hand soap, and that those costs have gone up since, since March, um, which I thought was really interesting. He mentioned that like nitrile gloves, I guess these gloves, um, you know, are protecting workers from surfaces and, you know, uh, any kind of virus contact. Um, but they, purchased them for $25 in February. And then that cost by May went up 320% to $105 to, to be buying a pair of gloves for a worker. So just kind of, you know, compounding that with everything else they have to do. These costs are only getting more expensive. It sounds like, um, as this pandemic progresses. And also, um, what I thought was really interesting was he mentioned the company has paid 350,000 to date in costs just going to voluntary severance payments, um, which is kind of interesting. It sounds like their workforce is really changing, and that is an, a cost in itself. And another thing we found that was really interesting is that um, these companies can't use their paycheck protection program money they received. Uh, Santa Monica Seafood, for example, received between 5 and $10 million, and they can't use that money actually on these expenses because those expenses have to go for people remaining on payrolls and they can go into things like rent and utilities, but they don't go to coronavirus costs. Costs. So um, yeah, it's kind of interesting because I've, I've heard some grumblings um, on Facebook pages and groups that, oh, these companies got all this money. Why don't they use it, you know, on our coronavirus measures? But it's not that simple. Yeah. Well, it's a fair question, right? That, that, that would seem like, that would seem like the point that you would actually use these funds to protect employees, not just financially, but also, um, you know, in their health. And I think what's interesting is that finding you had from, um, from O'Brien about the gloves, you know, it, it's going to be interesting as we start to look, um, in future coverage, um, about how seafood processing plants are changing. Be interesting to see what costs and what types of things they'll need to do to completely rearrange what they do. Um, you know, and, and there, we know there's been um, dividers put up. You know, obviously there's been more PPE, uh, there's thermometers. But are there any other changes that, um, John, that you heard um, just in terms of how they're 
setting up their factories in different ways, um, things like that. And we, we've heard all kinds of things, but just in the reporting on this story, what were some of the things that, that jumped up in terms of the physical layout of the plant or just how they operate that, that is designed to protect workers? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the shields and, and uh, you know, along with that goes separation between uh, the workers. I mean, generally, if you see a seafood plant, people are generally shoulder to shoulder. I think that's that's changed. So that has an impact, obviously, on this, the layout of the facility and how many people you can get in there. Also, a lot of discussion about how they have to stagger uh, shifts now, you know, um, get people in and out of the place uh, without them either getting contaminated to and fro or contaminating along the line. So uh, it's it sounds fairly significant and how it will affect uh, the longer term design of these plants and and how they, uh, you know, put their employees in there and on the line. I, I don't know, but it certainly, uh, it certainly has changed things in the near in the short term here. Yeah, well, it's going to be really interesting to to see what the seafood factory of the future is going to look like when all these uh, changes are made. And I'm sure there's a lot of people working really hard on the equipment side and uh, on the planning and logistics side to make it uh, to make it safer. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll just be tracking that great story and great reporting. So if you have not, uh, read that story, uh, folks, um, go on to Interfish and read it. It's really, really interesting and telling. So, uh, sticking on COVID, um, John Evans, you've been tracking, um, the, the latest in the, uh, in the, I don't want to call it a spat between China and Ecuador because it's, it's based on findings, um, in China of COVID traces on packaging, and that's a really, really important distinction on packaging of Ecuadorian shrimp. Um, try to sum up for us uh, where we are now and where this all started and, and where it's going to go. Well, it started in uh, July with the discovery of um, traces wasn't even uh, DNA uh, as the, uh, the the Ecuadorian shrimp industry, but it was RNA, a, a different uh, a different sort of metric, if you like, of uh, of, of what it is um, being found on as, as again as the uh, Ecuadorians say the outer packaging of um, of the shrimp. And when I say outer packaging, I mean we have obviously you have. Shrimp is put into packaging on the production line, and then it goes into a, a larger packaging when it goes um, out in, uh, to um, shipping containers. And um, you know, as I said, the Ecuadorians insist that it was on the outside of uh, packaging that that packaging, and also on the possibly on the inside of um, uh, shipping containers uh, themselves, the walls of shipping containers. And I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, the uh, the 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 Ecuadorians also, as you mentioned, have been um, investing heavily in measures to combat, you know, the contagion and um, and just just you know the general presence of uh, COVID nineteen. And and as they say, you know, once it leaves their hands and goes through the port, 
um, and uh, out on the boat for forty, the ship for twenty uh, for forty-five days to China, and then passes through various levels, uh, hands and levels of um, you know of um, traders and uh, shop owners and uh, warehouse people. It could have gone through. Uh, you know, they say tens of uh, uh, hands, you know, 40, 50, 60 hands before, you know, it reaches its final destination. Um, and uh, where we are right now is that there have been some uh, latest alleged discoveries of, uh, of traces of COVID-19 on packaging of Ecuadorian shrimp. And again, the um, today, the uh, National Chamber of Aquaculture, led by uh, Jose Antonio Campuzano, the president, um, of that trade body, you know, said these uh, tests cannot be trusted because they've, you know, they've broken the chain of custody uh, and, as I mentioned, gone through a long chain of, of people. Um, so that's where we are at the moment. Um, this week, Monday, as we broke the story, uh, Santa Priscilla, uh, Ecuador's um, largest producer, uh, had its access restored to the Chinese market, it along with Empa Cresi and uh, Ed Pasif, uh, was banned after their shipments, or when I say their shipments, the, the outer packaging, as they say, was found to uh, contain um, or found traces of uh, COVID on it. Um, Santa Priscilla and now Empa Cresi, uh, in the last couple of days, uh, have been cleared again to resume exports. Ed Pasif's um, process is still under review. Um, between the three companies, they account for 27% of Ecuadorian shrimp exports to China. And, and the reason this is important to um, Ecuador and, and the market as a whole is that 60% of Ecuador's shrimp exports go to China. It's become its biggest market. It's blown and blown and blown up in over the last few years. Um, in May, after a rebound, um, Exports fell when the uh, with the onset of uh, COVID in China, um, but they bounced back in uh, May to 116 million pounds, which was a record uh, from Ecuador to China. And then in just two months, uh, they nosedived to 11 million pounds. And um, the upshot of it all is that you know the, the Ecuadorian sphere now that they won't get back up to that level of 116 million pounds this year or next year at least while the pandemic pandemic is a, is a factor so yeah that's where we are at the moment yeah i mean i we were discussing before we got onto the podcast too um how likely it is that this actually originated in ecuador and john you you spelled out that uh, that length of time and all the different hands that, that can touch product on its way to the end market. Um, so I, I, I think the Ecuadorian uh, shrimp sector has a point. Um, but there is some concern, and Rachel, you brought this up. Um, there are some reports or concerns about how long uh, COVID can uh, COVID can remain uh, on surfaces, and I, I think that you know we've all uh, largely been given some kind of guidance to wipe down groceries or to leave packages waiting for you know uh, a day before we open them. And I don't know to what extent people are are following that still. 
Um, but that's going to be interesting to follow and and uh, and see. Uh, obviously, all uh, China's gone out of its way to reassure consumers when there was the uh, finding of salmon um, traces of of COVID on a cutting board um, that was used to to cut uh, to cut salmon um, farm salmon from Norway. China did go out of its way to try to reassure uh, its consumers that it was safe to um, safe to, to eat those products. Now there has been some rebound. I, I read in uh, one of the news sites uh, today that there's been a uh, an uptick to around seventy percent of what the pre the pre uh, the pre finding of COVID. Uh, on that cutting board, uh, and I'm talking salmon sales now. And at retail, I think they said it was at up to like 50. percent So it's there is some recovery, but you know the damage lingers. That's been a couple of months now since that finding, um, and consumers are understandably going to be concerned about it. Um, John Rabobank, uh, Gorian Nikolic from Rabobank, uh, he had some thoughts on what might be at work here. Um, China has in the past used uh, veterinarian uh, services to, uh, to act as a cudgel on trade issues. So for, for years, not long after uh, Norway awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, to a Chinese dissident, they suddenly started finding all kinds of problems, all kind of uh, uh, bacterium and, and viruses on Norwegian salmon. Uh, Russia has also tended to use similar approaches. Um, what was Nikolik's uh, uh, thoughts on that, and, um, and and what are we to think about whether or not this is in part being used um, uh, for politics. Well, when we spoke to Goyen uh, recently, I mean, he said that recent scandals linking COVID-19 to both uh, imported shrimp and salmon in China um, really smack of political maneuvering. I mean, he had a number of questions uh, that he, he wanted answers to, and I suppose everybody else wants answers to as well. And he was one of them is how is it that no one is questioning the obvious fact that a person chopping seafood in a busy market and serving it to customers might have had a coronavirus? Um, and also with testing by the food safety agencies, including the US uh, FDA, Food and Drug Administration and European Food Safety uh, Authority, uh, they are reporting no evidence of food uh, contamination or, 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 or as a carrier of covid 19, he was asking, you know, why authorities not giving the seafood industry the benefit of doubt that it, when there is a uh, a very high likelihood that the packaging was contaminated in China, really, for all the the reasons we've we've discussed earlier. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. Um, yeah, it, it is odd that they so specifically could could uh, track it back to. Um, specific products. There's there's no real axe to grind with Ecuador, you know, that, that I'm aware of between China and Ecuador. Um, so so that does kind of undercut the, the theory that it may be um, politically motivated. Norway is, is, a, is a different thing. Um, there has been spats uh, ongoing for several years. Um, but again, that's not really hot anymore. That's not really active. I did read about um, the Ecuadorians asking 
uh, requesting Chinese fishing vessels not to fish in their waters for certain species. Um, but when I put that as a question, is this why this is happening to the, the uh, Ecuadorian shrimp industry? No, he said, it's no, you can't mix the two. You can't mix the two things. They're not. They're not. Uh, it's it's not one and the same. So uh, no, they, we're discounting that at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think the race is on. You know, by uh, a lot of authoritarian governments, and um, I would probably lump the United States in, into that group right now. The race is on to find culprits that are not uh, the government themselves, and I think that yeah. is um, you know part of China's uh, mo right now is to try to look uh, overseas for. Uh, and look at imports for uh, why this is uh, where where sources could be coming from. But Rachel, you noted that um, New Zealand is now looking at that as well, and they certainly um, they've done an incredible job moderating the uh, or mitigating rather the uh, the impacts of COVID. I mean, they've been a model for that. So there is concern that maybe there there uh, could be an arrival of of COVID from these products, and we don't know. Um, Rachel, you said one story you read um, said COVID could survive up to two years in certain conditions, and there's been um, a lot of reports about the different um, different timelines. So, who knows if that does turn out to be the case? If they do start finding this um, kind of pre-handling or at ports on products, then I think we're in a whole completely different world uh of of how this all um plays out so um yeah so we'll we'll see about that yeah it's just uh i think the big thing that is of note with new zealand as well is that they had a hundred days right without any coronavirus cases they recently met that huge milestone like the only ones in the world and apparently that they are linking back that outbreak that has just been reported to a person who worked in a cold storage facility for AmeriCold in New Zealand. So that's really what's prompted my interest in that issue. And we're definitely going to be following up on that. This is a virulent uh, disease, and it can move very, very, uh, very, very quickly. And so this, this larger question becomes, how long can it remain on these surfaces? And is that going to have to lead to a completely different protocol in cold stores and um, and in docks and ports, which it, it most likely uh, most likely uh, has already had a huge impact in terms of the um, in terms of the, the protocols that are taken in, in those facilities. But I'm sure I'm sure there's going to be even more to come, just like there are in seafood plants. So we'll leave it there, folks. We're very glad to be back with our podcast. We have uh, a couple of things coming up. We have um, two events that are on the horizon. The first one uh, that is happening is our land-based salmon farming webinar, which is next Tuesday, 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, uh, 3 p.m. UK time, 4 p.m. in Europe. And we have a fantastic lineup of guests. There's very few topics that are uh, gathering as much interest as land-based salmon farming. Um, and already attendance is, is through the roof for that event, which just kind of shows there's, uh, there's a lot of folks that want to know what's, what's happening in that sector. And there's been a lot of new developments just even in the past few weeks uh, in the industry. And then after that, um, in a month, we are going to have uh, our Salmon Summit. Uh, where we'll be bringing together top executives in the sector to talk more broadly about the salmon farming industry, salmon markets, 
um, and, uh, and where the future is going to go in this COVID world. All right, folks, thanks, and we will speak to you next week.